Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later in the hour, the Library Bill of Rights, adopted by the American Library Association in 1939, was written in 1938 by a Des Moines librarian who was standing up to censorship. I'll talk about this history with Sue Woody, director of the Des Moines Public Library, today. But first, for many households, for many decades, this was the sound of Saturday night. From Hollywood, it's the Lawrence Welk Show. Lawrence Welk! Thank you, Bob. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Greetings, friends, and welcome. Thank you so much. My, what a wonderful audience on hand this evening. The theme of our show this evening is the music of the Roaring Twenties. The Lawrence Welk Show was in production from 1955 through 1982, and it has never been off the air. Lawrence Welk grew up in North Dakota, a son of immigrants who became an accordion-playing superstar, a band leader, and later on a television host and household name. Christopher Vondracek, likely doesn't remember a time when he didn't know who Lawrence Welk was. He is also a musician from a family of musicians, and shortly after graduating from college, he set off with his band, the Brickhouse Boys, in hopes of making it big. Now, he is the agricultural reporter for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He's also a poet and a musician, and has published his memoir, Dancing with Welk, Music, Memory, and Prairie Troubadours. He'll be reading and performing at Ray Gun in Des Moines Friday evening at 6.30 p.m., and he is on the line with me now. Hello, Chris. Chris, can you hear me? We're going to go with the hybrid... Oh. Our, yes, hello. Hi, Chris. It's nice nice to hear your voice. Nice. Yes, thank you for having me on. Sorry. We're going to um, switch to the phone there, Catherine, and we'll be able to hear Chris loud and clear, I think. Great. Can oh, you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Thank you okay. so much. <laughs> yes, sorry for the technical problems here. Hi. This, um, this is yeah. our life, Chris. So. <laughs> <laughs> True. I understand. Yeah, as a journalist, I, I get it. Sometimes you just sort of... Throw things together as best you can. So, so uh, I want to uh, start with the role that Lawrence Welk played in your family lore when you were growing up. I mean, I, I'm probably right. There isn't a time when you didn't know who Lawrence Welk was. No, well, I didn't. I mean, it's. I always thought he was sort of like this, like shadowy uncle figure, because <laughs> my parents would allude to him. Right? We like we didn't watch the show, which is always kind of sacrilege. I know for some folks. But like my parents certainly watched the show and I, um, but they would tell stories about like my, both my grandparents. So their fathers, my mom and dad's fathers um, had kind of played in similar music circles um, as, as wealth did in the early kind of quarter of the 20th century in the Dakotas and uh, Northeastern Nebraska. And so like they would talk about like how, Oh, well, you know, Welk was this cheapskate or, oh, Welk was, you know, he hired this nasally voiced Irish tenor and he should have hired my mom's dad, Edmund, like those kinds of things. I didn't quite know like who he was. I thought he was pretty regional until at some point I became aware that he was like, 
he was like everywhere in the 1950s <laughs> and 60s. Like he was like the American idol of the mid-century, you know? And at that point it was like, oh, I started to understand more like why he was talked about in this kind of lore in my family because he had been, like he was the one from the region who got famous, you right. know, for, for, for like an area that doesn't produce, I mean, certainly, for, you know, produces a lot of good musicians, no doubt, but like doesn't produce a lot of like famous musicians. So I think that's what uh, stuck with me kind of growing up. Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that. My grandfather was also a musician, and he had a big band, and he traveled the same um, tour route, the the regional yes. tour, as Lawrence Welk. And uh, there were a number of things said about Lawrence Welk in my family as well. Um, there may have been some sour grapes, and right. <laughs> some some choice right. choice words, um, some things we can't say in the radio, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so when. Uh, when you are, you've just graduated from college and you're yep. struggling with what you want to do next in life. Are you going to yep. go to grad school? Are you going to become a rock star? Are you actually a musician? You get right, dumped right. by a woman who doesn't want to date a musician. So you're struggling right. with your identity. And then your aunt hands you a copy of Lawrence Welk's autobiography. It's called Wonderful, Wonderful. Why did you, why did you even open that book, Chris? I was de- no, totally. I was desperate. In fact, yeah, it was like so. My aunt Rosemary Mullen, who's actually there in Des Moines, she uh, we were cleaning out the house in Beersford, South Dakota. My grandma, we were moving her to the nursing home, and I, yeah, you know, I think uh, kind of that sort of post college malaise or sort of like confusion about like what to do next, you know. And she just handed me this book off of grandma's bookshelf and was like, well, he was a musician. You know, you should be a musician. Um, and, and, and perhaps, you know, take some tips from Lawrence Walk. And at first I was like, no way. Like, That's like, ridiculous. Kind of right. It's ridiculous. Right. You like, it's the sort of book you see like in the kind of like bargain bin or like the free library, you know, <laughs> here's this, like, again, this regional like musician. I like, what possibly could I learn? But then, it was just like, I remember taking it back to where I was living at the time in, in Vermilion, South Dakota. And I just like fell in love with the book because it was like so richly told. I mean, it's like, it's a ghostwriter. Like Lawrence himself wasn't terribly a strong, like, like a sort of um, English speaker even. Like he basically spoke German for his first, whatever, till he's a teenager or something. Um, but he, uh, he tells a story that is like, kind of a, um, a coming of age tale in the Dakotas when, for, for him. And it was talking about, you know, like playing these gigs in a church basement and the priest like was so ticked off because they played till after midnight. And I was like, man, this, like, these are sort of like sad gigs <laughs> in some ways. And you and were really playing were, some sad gigs I at was, the time. I was playing some really sad gigs. Like, you know, when they're, I think at, at one point they tore down the student, student center uh, at the college I was attending and they had a concert for what reason I don't know but they hired our band to play we played you know I I described one uh, scene in the book about we played at this bar outside of Sioux Falls where people kept on asking us to play our cover of Randy Newman's short people <laughs> like we had to keep playing it to get till the end of the night till two in the morning and get our money so it and like those are the sort of stories of the musician that are fun to tell to other musicians because they kind of, you know, they're like, they're not the glorious ones. Right. And 
to find those in Welk's book that it was so humanizing. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm sort of interested in this guy, uh, even though we're 80 years apart, even though he plays the accordion. Like, um, I think there's some sort of common thread here about making music from the upper Midwest. So, And there was a moment and it, you've had several moments of serendipity with Lawrence Welk, but there was a moment um, <laughs> As a student, you were in a class and your professor asked what what book you wanted to focus on for a class project. You had forgotten to pick a book. And so you said, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I did. Yeah. So I was it's actually started, um, started grad school at University of South Dakota and our, our department chair was like, you know, you guys, as you as you all know, you were supposed to read a book over the summer. And I had just spent the summer trying to be this like you know, this like Latter-day rock star. (laughs) I was like, oh no, what possible book have I read? And I was like, I've read the Lawrence Welk book. And so I mentioned that my professor just like had a smile on her face because she was like, well, like she was not from the Midwest. She was from the East Coast, but but her husband had worked for South Dakota Public Broadcasting where like every fundraiser, people would call in like every second. I mean, you totally know, right? There's like cardboard cutouts of him when you walk into the lobby of the place. You know, it's like, he was like the institution and I don't know if I think he's still on, I don't know if he's still on in Iowa. He's definitely still on yep. in Minnesota and North Dakota. So yeah. Anyway, I mean, the show is kind of raucous and it's wild. It's like technicolor, you know, brilliance at points, but it's, it's also really hokey and cheesy and all those things. But anyway, so I think that's the book that I started, that I sort of studied um, for grad school and it took me to a pop culture conference in New Mexico and no one showed up. So I was like, speaking to an empty room about Lawrence Welk. It was very bizarre. But that's, yeah, I don't want to give too much away. I want folks to <laughs> maybe be interested so, in picking up the book. I, I do want to ask you, I mean, you read this book, obviously, you were traveling basically the same circuit that yep. Welk traveled, traveled early in his career, although a lot of the dance halls that he had played in had been torn down or burned down or, mm-hmm. you know, transformed mm-hmm. over time. So you, you were, again, following in his footsteps many, many years later. But what was it that kept you going? I mean, that's a that's a summer of serendipity, but you never gave Welk up. What do you think it was yeah. that grabbed you and just wouldn't Gosh. let you go? You know, I think no one has, um, to me at least, no one's like, uh, like taken this story about making music in this in this area, um, and and set it to kind of a book form. And I felt very, um, I felt like everywhere I go, and I if I talk, and people are always giving me Lawrence Welk vinyl records, by the way, which <laughs> like there's a stack in our basement that I don't listen to, cause, but but people see it everywhere, particularly in in our region. He's this like folk figure. It's like, he's like the Paul Bunyan or something, you know, he's sort of like been handed down. And even if folks don't even know, you know, like didn't watch his show or whatever, there's something about him as a cultural staple for so many people in this region that I felt like there should be a book on him. And the more I sort of followed him, the weirder our stories got. Like, I think there's a a section in the book where I've been a reporter out in Rapid City, South Dakota. And I was at this gosh, this sort of far flung county fair interviewing this person at this strange, like kind of rodeo deal. And we started talking about Lawrence Welk, you know, like he had, he had taken lessons from Welk's saxophone player or something. I mean, so there's a kind of this great, it's like this great connection that he makes for so many of us. And that frankly is what's probably most interesting to me is the way that I can connect to people through Welk more so than like, 
you know, like here's a biography. Like if people are thinking this is going to be a biography of Lawrence Welk, they might be a little disappointed. It's not exactly that. But Well, we're, we're going to talk more about you and Lawrence Welk in just a moment. We're going to take a short break. I sure. am talking with Christopher Vondercheck. He is the author of Dancing with Welk, Music, Memory, and Prairie Troubadours. It is a memoir. It's a little bit about Lawrence Welk. It's a little bit about Christopher Vondercheck and... A little bit about some other things as well. We'll find out more in a moment. He'll be reading and performing at Raygun in Des Moines Friday evening at 6.30 p.m. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, the Library Bill of Rights and a story about a Des Moines public librarian who stood up to censorship in the 1930s. Right now, I'm talking with Christopher Vondracek. He is the author of Dancing with Welk, Music, Memory, and Prairie Troubadours. It's a memoir that is a little bit about Lawrence Welk and a little bit about Christopher Vondracek. Lawrence Welk, of course, grew up in North Dakota. He was a son of immigrants who went on to become an accordion-playing superstar, a band leader, a television host, a household name. His show has never been off the air. You can still watch it on public broadcast casting stations nationwide. And Christopher Vondracek is a writer, a musician, a poet. After college, he set out to become a rock star and at the same time was reading Lawrence Welk's autobiography. So I, I want to, um, for people, I think everybody knows Lawrence Welk's name, but Chris, let's do a little bit of, of Lawrence Welk 101. He did grow up sure, in North yeah. Dakota. He was born in the United States, but his parents were immigrants from a, a, a really small ethnic group. This was a group of Germans who lived in Russia, and uh, many of them actually settled in the Dakotas. But um, so he he grew up in a very remote place, large family. Tell me a little bit more about his childhood. Yeah, so he was very much um, in a kind of, yeah, like you said, a very remote place in sort of South Central North Dakota and um, heavily German speaking. And Welk was, I think, like the sixth of eight children. His father was a blacksmith. And they basically it was kind of you know, what you would imagine growing up in North Dakota in the early 20th century would be on the sort of quote-unquote frontier, a very austere kind of Spartan existence. But every Saturday night, his dad would take the accordion down, the squeeze box down, and they'd play tunes. And Lawrence sort of just, he just loved music. And he actually had a really scary uh, infection when I think he was about nine years old. Um, he was taken to the hospital in Bismarck, and his parents kind of, his family sort of thought he was going to die um, but he recovered kind of miraculously, and then he couldn't do uh, farm chores for a few months. And so he kind of convalesced in the home, and when he was 
strong enough, he would take his dad's accordion up to the barn and he would play tunes. Now, this is Welk's telling in his 1971 autobiography, Wonderful, Wonderful. You know, like whether this is actually the accurate truth, perhaps it's been dressed up a little bit, but it's a wonderful story about him falling in love with music. And so when he turned, um, I, I, I think when he turned 21 or so, he basically set off to become a professional musician with an accordion that he had worked for years on the farm to pay off that I think was like, you know, kind of like emblazoned or monogrammed with the name Lawrence on the side of it. And and, and, and his dad very much disapproved of oh, his yes. choice. Classic. Yeah, he didn't want to be, you know, like sort of, I mean, he wouldn't have been like a long-haired hippie rock star from the 60s. But he didn't want to be this polka player, this sort of like band guy. You know, they had, like even back then, uh, it had kind of a bad reputation. Uh, and he was very Catholic. His family was very Catholic. And he, you know, thought he should own a farm or run a farm and sort of stay close to home and that sort of thing. And Lawrence had other ideas. So he started making a name for himself. You share multiple times the, the sort of legend of how he cut his teeth by performing at three-day weddings where he would play until his fingers bled and the straps of the mm-hmm. accordion would cut into his shoulders. But yeah. <laughs> So it, yes. it, it was really hard to get discovered and to make it big on that Midwestern circuit. But he, he was. So how did he do it? Yeah, it took him a long, long time. In fact, somebody I spoke with said basically the reason why Welk um, like ended up becoming nationally famous is because he was kind of a dinosaur. He was the only one still doing big band music in the early 1950s, long after, you know, big band had kind of died away by that point um, for other forms. But throughout the night, you know, throughout the 1920s, he moved down to Yankton, South Dakota in a blizzard. And he got stuck there for 10 years working on a radio station called WNAX. And he would play at six in the morning and two in the afternoon. And then, People from, you know, sort of like Kansas to North Dakota, big AM station, you know, would hear him. And then he'd go out on weekends and play these little small towns. And like my grandfather, my dad's side remembers, uh, well, playing in Verdigree, Nebraska one night. It was a big deal. And he wore a white suit and all this stuff. And so he kind of did that, though, for a long time. And slowly but surely, he made his way out to Chicago. And then eventually um, he landed out in Los Angeles, where a lot of Midwesterners had moved after the Great Depression. And when they had a little bit more spending money in the early 50s, they would go out to see Lawrence Welk. And he was playing at these ballrooms out kind of in suburban L.A. And uh, then he got picked up by a TV or um, the Chevrolet dealers of Southern California wanted him to be or the Dodge dealers, I should say, wanted him to be like kind of their spokesperson, so to speak. And so he had a TV show that was kind of regional for a while. And then eventually he was picked up by ABC nationally. And the Lawrence Welk show, I mean, you're, you already said it. In the early 1950s, he was playing a kind of music that was already tinged with nostalgia. I mean, he, we, here yeah. we were at the beginning of the rock era, and yep. he was firmly planted at least a decade before. So, I mean, the Lawrence Welk show, of course, we all think of it with nostalgia now, but that's how it began as a nostalgic <laughs> show, right? Right. No, totally. It does kind of remind me, like, maybe a contemporary comparison would be like, again, like, tuning in to watch The Masked Singer, where they're doing songs that were popular 20 years ago or something. Like, that's kind of what Welk immediately was. Like, he was never cool, you know? I mean, you have to go back into these, and I have, because I've kind of been obsessive about this, but you can find newspaper clippings from the 30s, where Welk's band would be, would be characterized as having a quote-unquote hot sound. 
because they had added like a like an organ and stuff. But for the most part, he was what they would call like sweet music or easy listening music. And so, yeah, to the large kind of middle class, silent majority, however you want to phrase it, to a lot of folks in the early 1950s, while the kids wanted to listen to rock and roll or mid or, or to the mid 50s and later, the kids wanted to listen to rock and roll, you know, you could also sort of still listen to someone do like <laughs> Moonlight Sonata and then do a tap dance and maybe see someone like twirling plates or whatever on the Lawrence Welk show. Right, right. Uh, so it felt yeah. safe and wholesome and entertaining. It, yes, exactly. Yeah. And he did have a number one hit in 61 called like Calcutta, which was kind of this like groovy, but it's still really sexy. It's kind of like like the PG or really G version of like Austin Powers or something. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Lawrence Welk, also, uh, you talked about how he was talked about when when you were growing up. I mean, he represented something to people, something he was one of us. And again, we're when we say us, we're talking about this so-called silent majority. I mean, he he came to be a symbol, didn't he? Yeah, he really did. And I tried. I mean, it can get it can get a little bit hairy when you start thinking about like why Welk became popular? Like why did the Dodge dealers choose Welk? You know, I mean, there are plenty of great musicians. I talk about this in the book, you know, like who were kind of contemporary to Welk, you know, why not Tito Puente, right? Tito Puente, why not Duke Ellington? You know, all these kinds of fantastic musicians, a lot of musicians of color, but that, you know, I I think there was something about Welk that, to that kind of gestalt, that sort of what we, what people maybe saw, what sort of advertisers certainly, because he was definitely linked to advertising. You know, he could sell stuff even back in the days in Yankton when at WNAX he was always sort of being branded. He had a bubblegum themed band for a while, you know, and so I think a lot of the, um, yeah, kind of the advertisers, the corporations of the mid 20th century America, that kind of Eisenhower culture really saw Welk as a pretty um, un, sort of inoffensive vehicle for for uh, their products. I'm talking with Christopher Vondrachuk. He is the author of Dancing with Welk, Music, Memory, and Prairie Troubadours. And so let's let's focus again on you and, and what was going on with you at, at this time of your life, in your early 20s. You were really torn between yes. music and writing, academia perhaps, or some sort of respectable way to make a living as opposed to... <laughs> As opposed to being a rock star. Well, yeah. So basically, I think we had alluded to it earlier, but I, you know, this, this gal I was dating had basically we said like, "Hey, I can't date a musician." And I thought like, "No, that's like a that's like a four letter word. Like, don't call me a musician." You know, even though I had grown up in a family of musicians, I felt like that was not going to be my path. I wasn't going to be living out of a van, you know, eating ramen like that you're microwaving in a gas station bathroom or something. You know, I mean, it just felt like. It's a, it's a tough road to do it. You know, anyone who's ever gone on tour or tried to be a really kind of an artist of any kind, you're sort of like an entrepreneur, you know, with really bad hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and bad, so bad got, pay. Bad, bad pay, no pay. Yeah. And so I think that was my thing. I was really worried. But then in some respects, it was like the greatest thing I did when I got out of college. And instead of pursuing initially, at least journalism, I, yeah, I, I joined this band and we went on tour and, I didn't like it. I mean, it's that's kind of played out in the book. I mean, it, like there were some fun times, there were some really not fun times, but I felt as if that gave me a taste of that life um, 
of trying to produce, you know, I guess maybe not produce is the right word, but like trying to be an artist, I guess is the, maybe the easiest way of saying it. And I felt like, um, yeah. And, I, and, and, and Welk was like my pilgrim, you know, like, right. <laughs> like, I'm like if, if that guy can do it, if that guy who, you know, he's definitely going to get up for church every Sunday morning, even though he maybe stays out till five in the morning on Saturday night, if he can do it, then I can definitely do it. So you were also, coming to terms with the idea of being a musician. And and one of the just lovely things about your book is as you explore your own path, spend way too much time reading about Lawrence Welk and thinking about Lawrence Welk and traveling to Lawrence Welk meccas, um, right. you are also getting to know your family in a new way mm-hmm. and, and thinking about your family. And I know you don't want to give anything away, but there is this wonderful sure. moment toward the end of the book where... One of your, I think it's one of your aunts said to you and said to your mother, what didn't you ever tell Christopher about the crib? And (laughs) I would love for you to tell us that story. There are lots of other great stories in the book. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's fun to talk about that particular part of the book. So, um, yeah, basically we were down at a, um, this was when the band was still together and the sort of, uh, sort of late throws of the band uh, that I was in, we were at a funeral for my uh, my dad's mother, my grandmother, and uh, we were sort of standing around and we were at the wake actually. And Leo, my, my younger brother who was in the band, uh, he and I had to go back to South Dakota that night to play in a show. And I kind of was apologizing to my aunt. Um, and she said, well, like, that's okay. That's, you know, that's how your grandmother would have expected things because in our family, we're all musicians, of course, because of this crib, this crib we all slept in that had come over from Europe. And I was just like floored. I was like, are you like, what, <laughs> what crib are we talking about? And it's like, uh, it does exist. I saw it this summer. We now have an eight month old. So Rosie has uh, been, in, you know, introduced to the crib. It's not really, it's kind of like not a very safe crib. It's sure. very old. But apparently all of the grandchildren or most of the grandchildren on my dad's side um, had slept in this crib. And all of a sudden, you know, things started to click into place. And I thought, gosh, you know, my dad was a band director. My grandfather was a band director. Like there are musicians in the family going back generations. Um, And so it, it kind of, you know, it reintroduced to me this concept of being a musician in a way that felt very like almost ordained or something that it was kind of part of a legacy that I was just just a tip of the iceberg just aware of until that moment. Although in looking at your family members who have pursued music in one way or another because of this passion, this love, and then looking at Lawrence Welk and and how he was pursuing music because of that passion and love, but he was also pursuing yeah. fame. And there are so many stories about Lawrence Welk not being a very nice guy, not paying his band well, <laughs> making, I mean, really making some enemies, making yeah. some big sacrifices on a personal level to achieve yep. the fame that he achieved. And of course, that's a story with so many celebrities is that you, you yeah. know, you uh, are stepping on some people on your way up the ladder. Did did that make you think hard about, okay, wait, what kind of life do I want to live? What kind of sacrifices am I willing to make? Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the, the tumult at the, at the center of a lot of my kind of reflections at the time when I was in the band and ever, and, and I, you know, you sort of see these roads that kind of that divert and there is this path that you can go down in which 
you know, music is, you know, it's a business and it's, and it can be, it can tear, tear friends and family apart. And then there's another path where it's like music can be sort of like what Welk's father was in, the, in a lot of ways, which was, it's the Saturday night, you know, it's the Saturday night joy that he could bring his family. And I don't know where I sort of ultimately ended up on that question. I know like my brother who I alluded to earlier is like, he's a, he's basically a professional musician who got like weirdly famous on TikTok last year. <laughs> So it's like I've seen him now kind of go through that sort of stuff. But typically in our family, we had typically been, you know, we had gotten to that point where there was a moment to maybe go pursue this more professionally. And we've always, you know, so many of them have ended up back on that kind of, you know, being a band director. My mom's dad, my grandfather on the other side, uh, kind of sang at the tri-county funerals and, and weddings and that sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's, but it's, but it makes for good stories when you can say, well, I could have done that too, you know, like years on right. and that kind of, whether it's sour grapes or whatever it is, it's like, well, I could have done that too. I just chose not to. So there's a bit of a uh, compensation kind of built into that. Right. It's hard, it's hard to be 100% honest about that. Um, yes. So you've worked on this book for 13 years. And and here it is, and you're traveling around sharing it with people now. What does what does this book mean to you? This milestone of of so many yeah. years of thought and effort that has come to fruition. Gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, in some respects, maybe that kind of is. You know, I just moments ago said I. You know, I don't know where I land on that question of like, uh, you know, being a being a kind of uh, full time artist or whatever. I mean, I obviously have a day job, but. Um, to me, the book has been kind of my version of the of of Welk and his musical dreams. Is that I kind of even you know moments when it was like, you know, talking to publicists, you, like like anyone who wants to sell a book, what it does, and you're and they're like, who, like what, like what is your book? <laughs> who is Lawrence <laughs> Welk? Or like who are you? You know, uh, from South Dakota or Minnesota, or whatever. And, but um, I think there was a certain fire to kind of continue to push it um, and, and kind of persevere. Uh, and so I just absolutely, you know, it's just a dream come true to be able to talk to, to, to you or others about the book um, that exists now in the world. And for so long, it was just like a Microsoft Word file on my computer. <laughs> well, and, and you are still also, in addition to being a, a reporter, you are a musician. You're going to be, we only have about 30 seconds left, but you're going to be performing oh. as well as reading. So yeah. what, yeah, are you I'm performing a... Lawrence Welk numbers? or? No, I wish. <laughs> That'd probably be more fun. I, I'm just going to play some scraps of Brickhouse Boys tunes. And Brickhouse nice. Boys was the band that I had been in. And my brother had said, hey, you, should, you know, I really want to listen to this. He's like, I read it. I liked it, but I really want to hear these tunes. So I thought, well, on Friday night in, uh, at, at, at uh, the bookstore there, Raygun, I'm going to yeah, play some Brickhouse Boys tunes to give people a sense of how we sounded, not just, um, you know, what we did. All right. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for talking with me. And I thoroughly enjoyed this book. Oh, thank you, Terry. Appreciate it. Christopher Vondrachuk, he is the author of Dancing with Welk, Music, Memory, and Prairie Troubadours. He'll be at Ray Gunn in Des Moines Friday evening at 6.30 p.m. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In 1938, as authoritarian regimes rose around the world, Forrest Spaulding, a public librarian in Des Moines, stood up to censorship at home. As part of his efforts, he crafted the first Library Bill of Rights, a document that would later be adopted by the American Library Association. And I'm going to read what he wrote in this first Library Bill of Rights. He said, Now, when indications in many parts of the world point to growing intolerance, suppression, suppression of free speech and censorship affecting the rights of minorities and individuals, the Board of Trustees of the Des Moines Public Library reaffirms these basic policies governing a free public library to serve the best interests of Des Moines and its citizens. One, books and other reading matter selected for purchase from public funds shall be chosen from the standpoint of value and interest to the people of Des Moines, and in no case shall selection be based on the race or nationality, political or religious views of the writers. Two, as far as available material permits, all sides of controversial questions shall be represented equally in the selection of books on subjects about which differences of opinion exist. Three, official publications and or propaganda of organized religious, political, fraternal, class, or regional sects, societies, or similar groups and of institutions controlled by such are solicited as gifts and will be made available to library users without discrimination. This policy is made necessary because of the meager funds available for the purchase of books and reading matter. It is obviously impossible to purchase the publications of all such groups, and it would be unjust discrimination to purchase those of some and not of others. And four, library meeting rooms shall be available on equal terms to all organized nonprofit groups for open meetings to which no admission fee is charged and from which no one is excluded. Now, that document has been revised over the years, but it is still an important document for public libraries everywhere in the United States. And with me to talk about this history is Sue Woody, director of the Des Moines Public Library. Today, hello, Sue. Hello, Charity. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And from from what you know, I, I know we may not know a whole lot about exactly what was going on at the Des Moines Public Library in 1938, but what do we know about what prompted Forrest Spaulding to write this document? Well, we do know... What was going on in the times back then? It was the beginning of the Great Depression. It was the beginning of World War II. So we're seeing book burning. We're seeing the rise of totalitarian governments. Um, So I think he was very affected by that. I think he was even affected by that um, earlier on in his career. He did come to Des Moines in 1917, left for a little while, but then did come back in the 30s. And I'm so glad that you read the the whole Library Bill of Rights as it was originally stated, including that preamble, because, gosh, things have not changed as much as we would have thought since 1938 to today. And in 1938, when we think about the rise of totalitarian regimes, of course, most minds immediately turn to Germany and the rise of Hitler. And uh, if we have read our history, we know about massive bonfires full of books that were banned and burned in German communities because of the rise of the Nazi regime. However, there was censorship taking place in the United States as well. And, And that rise of totalitarian thinking was not just something that was limited to Germany. So Forrest Spaulding was probably observing challenges to reading material in the United States as well. 
Absolutely he was. And as a librarian, we feel that it's so important that both sides of any issues are represented in our collections and in our materials and in our programming. And so he had um, several experiences, you know, whether it was meeting rooms or whether it was with the collection, that he really did have to be fair-minded. Now, the American Library Association adopted this Library Bill of Rights, again, in a slightly different form even in 1939. It has been revised over the years. From as a, the point of view of a, a library director today, what does this document mean to you today? Well, it means now more than ever how important it is that we... Um, uphold our rights, our rights for intellectual freedom and our First Amendment rights. And this is something that the library needs to take a stand on. This issue, um, like we started out, it's been going on since 1930s. And it has risen and kind of hidden away for for a few years, and it rises its ugly head every few years. I think of McCarthyism and Red Scare and communism. And so I think whenever something like this comes up, we go back to our basics, back to our Library Bill of Rights for those foundational, those foundations and, and really just articles of freedom that we have to go back to and rely on that we often take for granted. Well, and, and public libraries um, all over the country have been facing challenges to some of the material on their shelves. And again, this is not new, but it has been ramping up in in recent years in very high-profile ways, and there have been organized efforts to ban specific books or challenge specific books in school libraries, but also in public libraries all over the United States. The Internet has allowed people to to organize in, in some newer ways in trying to accomplish that. So with this Library Bill of Rights, um, that does that serve as kind of a foundational piece? Because public libraries are dealing with this on a one-on-one basis in their community. But is that kind of a foundational document where a library director says, wait, we need to look at our principles and decide how to respond? Yes, of course. We have what we call our collection development policy. And this is where we are looking at our collections. And we want to make sure that we are giving equitable experiences, whether it's for education, enlightenment, for fun. Um, We just want to make sure that we are reflecting the needs of our community. And I will also say that every community is different. And there are more conservative communities and there are more liberal communities. And while we do always take that into first consideration, we also want to make sure that we are promoting ideas that are just not representing only our communities, but are also exploring other cultures, other traditions, other ideas in order to expose our audience, our community to to new ideas. And in that document, it makes it very clear that it's not the library's role to promote a certain ideology. No, we have to be very fair and balanced. <laughs> we have to have both um, the, the negatives, the positives, the conservatives, the liberal. We try to make sure that we have all points of view on whether it's a current issue or whether it's a historical issue. You know, for example, 
this is not just all LGBTQ and sex-minded, but think of the history, the, the history that we are um, having some denials of. We brought Nicole Hannah-Jones to Des Moines a few years ago with her 1619 project. So it's it's not just current issues, but we also have to have um, good representation of historical issues as well. Tell me a little bit, you're in the Des Moines Public Library, but tell me a little bit about how you see public libraries in the state of Iowa, because we have more than most states, don't we? That's one of the really interesting things. In Iowa, every little teeny tiny town has a little library. And I have I admit I have had thoughts sometimes of why do we have every 20 miles you'll, you'll hit a public library? Well, but they're so important because these are the pride of these communities. This is the seat of the communities. They are gathering places. They have meeting rooms available. They have access to the internet, access to books and materials and programs. So it really is important that all of these little libraries, and they are all very different, they they have their unique characters and people support that and people want to, are proud of that and people want to continue to have that. From your perspective, uh, this period of time, and we talked about the the rise of challenges to certain books, and we've seen controversy not just in Des Moines, but in in towns all over Iowa. The library in Vinton actually closed Mm -hmm. for a time after the second director stood down. There were a lot of citizens in Vinton who were complaining about uh, supposedly the library pushing a liberal agenda because it had... LGBTQ topics available in books, although um, the the former director of the library did point out at a meeting, she said, of the almost 6,000 children's materials in the library, seven included headings of LGBT, gay, or transgender, and 173 were based on Christian life. Um, so there, there were people who objected to a small number of books in the library and got a lot of traction based on their objections to this very small percentage of books in the library. But it, from your perspective, what is it like for librarians right at this moment in time? Because there are sometimes frightening attacks being made. I would actually say this has been one of the most challenging times for librarianship. And not just the directors who are stepping down, but we've got board of trustees that are being um, kind of railroaded into a more conservative leaning. And so that's got the people, the librarians, the, the people on the front lines worried for their jobs. And it's not just in our own segment, but all of this controversy, it's hitting teachers. It's hitting superintendents. We know that they are stepping down as well. Um, the, the pressure is on in, in so many more ways than one. And I mentioned what happened in Vinton. Of course, that's only one example of mm-hmm. this kind of controversy. And it meant that two directors quit in a row in that small town public library. Are you seeing librarians quitting because they don't feel safe? I would have to say I've seen librarians very concerned for their safety. What We represent everyone and, and all are welcome at a library. We get all walks of life. So yes, we are concerned um, because there's a lot of angry people out there in our community. And it's a it's a really frightening time for many people. So we are having lots of discussions around safety and security at the library, not just because of this censorship issue, but because we are an open, open 
a community or place, a space for anyone to come in. And uh, we just know that, that there's some scary stuff going on out there. I want to talk, before we run out of time, a little bit about the mission of public libraries, because I, I think that there are you know, there are people who interact with public libraries all the time and have a pretty full understanding of what public libraries do. There are other people who don't need to go to the public library for, for whatever reason. And it wasn't very long ago, Sue, that, that I remember people saying, well, our public library is obsolete. Maybe maybe we don't need them anymore. Um, and of course, uh, that has not proven to be the case. But tell me from your perspective, what is the mission of a public library in a community? Well, the mission is to connect people to information that they need, materials, books, programming, what is important to them as individuals. And we know that we are all very different. We have different lives, different concerns, different day-to-day problems that, that need to be solved. And that what is what a library is for. The information that I need is very different than the information that you need. And we've gone from a, a society of you know, 100 years ago, the library was the only place to get information. Now we come to the library for the opposite reason. There is so much information, and especially misinformation out there. We need educated, qualified librarians to help people navigate through all of the information that is out there to get the information that is apropos and perfect for them. And you've made it clear that it is not a library's role to advocate for a particular agenda. When a person comes to the public library, uh, librarians can, can help them find the information or the kinds of books or other materials that they are looking for. And that that's a librarian's job to do without judgment, right? Absolutely. They are such great qualified librarians that we have, that all of our libraries have, that um, if you do want, if you maybe you have two mommies in your family, two daddies in your family, we have information that you need because representation is so important for children, whether it is children of color, children living alternative um, realities of in their families than, than just the typical white Christian. So we are very... Um, it's very important to us that we find the materials that they need, but conversely, for people who have a more conservative slant, who want Christian information, we are happy to find that for them as well. And we've got so much information on both sides as well as in the middle. Tell me about the public library's relationship to school libraries, because so much of the political rhetoric that we've been hearing recently has been focused on on school libraries, which, of course, serve a very specific audience. Public libraries are there to serve everyone. Tell me how you think about that relationship. We are here to support all libraries, and that includes school libraries. Let's go back to that Library Bill of Rights. Libraries should challenge censorship in the fulfillment of their responsibility to provide information and enlightenment. That's Article Number 3. Article Number 4 says libraries should cooperate with all persons and groups concerned with resisting the abridgment of free expression and free access to ideas. Those groups are schools, teachers, families, students. We stand behind them. We support them. And we know what a great job. You made the the point earlier, seven pages might be objectionable. Let's put it in context. Let's read the whole uh, book. Let's read the whole book, but it's just seven pages out of a book, out of context, out of 
thousands of books. So let's just open people's minds and and give them the information that is applicable to them without alienating other people and without letting them have access to the information that is important to their family. What do you think is lost when a book is banned? Oh, so much. This is our intellectual freedom. What is lost are people's lives, people's voices. If you read some of these challenged stories, you will find stories of bravery, of resilience. Let's focus on that beauty and and how brave are they to be able to tell their story and be attacked for it and, and knowing that and tell it anyways. So we all have a right to tell our stories. And if we lose that right just to tell our stories, what rights are going to be lost in the future? I, I keep thinking about that Mark Twain quote, history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. I mean, this does feel like a pivotal point in our history, doesn't it? It does. But let's remember that history has not been kind to book banners and those people who are burning books. And, you know, let's hope that we get through this and let's focus on really more important topics that matter in the schools, such as literacy. Let's not focus on who's reading those seven pages. Let's make sure that all kids can read and read well and read at their their peer levels because too many kids are getting left behind. And that's a whole other topic. I could go down that road, but I know we're limited on time. Well, Sue Woody, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. Sue Woody is director of the Des Moines Public Library. We've been talking about the Library Bill of Rights. The first Library Bill of Rights was written in Des Moines by a public librarian in 1938 as he stood up to censorship. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.